there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Dida, Cafu, Nesta, Stam, Maldini, uh, Gattuso, Pirlo, Seydorf, Kaka, Chenko, and Crespo. Why can't Ancelotti stay away from the diamond? For any Real Madrid fan out there, enjoy. Because you, but let him cook. On his first game, they unfurled a banner that said, go home, you fat pig. I think he's a dying breed of truly great managers. Gattuso is Camavinga. Clarence Seydorf is Valverde. Perlo, the controller at the base of it all, Chiumeni. And Kaka, the attacking threat for the free roll to do as they want. Sounds a lot like... Bellingham. I think at the end of it all, we will suggest that Bellingham was a better player than Kaka. And this is a harking back to one of the greatest football teams of all time. And I think it's about time we start recognising him as well. Ancelotti is a managerial chameleon and has been famed for his adaptation in whatever circumstances he finds himself, meaning he has always found a way to hit the ground running at whatever club he's been at. But now he finds himself in a position that he was in 20 years ago. And that position is being able to use the diamond formation. He did it at Milan. He tried it at other teams and failed. But now he's fulfilling his destiny and turning Bellingham into something we never thought he'd become in the process. This is a almost an extra podcast. Yeah. Dev... Bajwa, who is an author. He's written two books. Tell people about the first book, which yeah. I think allows people to know that you've got some real knowledge there. And then second of all, the second book uh, of which we're going to kind of uh, dive into the the knowledge of that in this podcast. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on again. I think like, yeah, second time coming on. So it's like, mama made it yeah, twice. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good day. Chilling at home now. But, That's good, man. But no, like, I know this is like in it, like, inadvertently licking your ass a bit, but I have you to thank for the first one. I remember sending it to you or like messaging you about right. it. And I think, was it on LinkedIn? I swear Maybe. it was, Maybe. it might have been LinkedIn. And, um, and then, yeah, you started talking about it. But I remember that was the first ever book I did during lockdown, got a lot of time. And it was more like in the last 50 years, how did we get from then to now? Like all the bits that actually link up to take you mm. from then to now in the first book and the first book's called uh, that's called the football spider web right and then uh wanted to niche it down a little bit for the second one so the conquerors was just simply i looked at who like what teams i loved growing up i'm a united fan so couldn't write about the chelsea team i was scared of or the arsenal team and they were kind of talked about already and i was just listening to my favorite player ever rude van nistelrooy and i was just listening to oh, it was like the oxford university or something he was oh, okay yeah. and he said um he was asked, oh, what's the toughest defence you ever played against? And he just named the entire AC Milan back line under Ancelotti. And then I thought back to like playing FM 2006, 2007 and playing with those teams and then realised no one wrote about it. Mm. So I thought this would be a really good one to write about. And it's probably out of the entire history of Milan, the one that has the most stories involved, the most ripples for sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I decided to write it. It was out in March this year. The response has been really, really positive. And, um, and yeah, I'm just really thankful for it. But uh, yeah. And the sort of timeline, which we'll get into, is quite awkward actually yeah. in terms of a team that was very successful but had some wobbles and shocks along the way, of yeah. which we'll get into. I do want to just ask you about writing a book mm. because... 
I get a lot of messages from people uh, all the time. And I think the reason I, I sort of pushed the book and mm. I was ha- more than happy to do so was I was like, that's that's the attitude. Yeah. Crack on, do it, right? Yeah. But writing a book is not normally the thing that people do. People yeah. go, I'll make a I'll make a channel. It's miles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's certainly what I look to do. Yeah, like, yeah. It's easier for me to say it than to kind of write it down with decent grammar and, and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So why why write a book and how did you find that process? Because there might be people here that are listening who, who would like to do a similar thing. Yeah, to be honest, like I didn't think I could do one. <laughs> so it was half like. Okay. Did you have was that was that your thing? You know, like I, I um you know some people have. They love to write. That's yeah. their thing. Yeah. Is, is that your thing? Telling stories was always my thing. Mm-hmm. So I was never into, you might hate, I was never into stats. I was never into data, so to speak. I was always a storyteller. Like yeah. I just, I'd rather sit there with my friends and be like, do you remember this player and that player? And then just like get onto it like that. So, mm-hmm. and then I remember as a kid, like in English class, like with my English lit with Miss Brown, shout out Miss Brown, love you Miss Brown. She, mm-hmm. um, she always encouraged me to write. And then I struggled with it when I was younger. I was a, textbook waffler still am now really that's all writing a book is yeah, yeah. uh you just waffle but with grammar and then um i decided to to actually give it a go because i was like well no one can stop me especially now for anyone who's listening who's thinking about doing it you don't need a literary agent you don't need a publisher so to speak you can go on amazon and any anyone could put out whatever the hell they want as mm-hmm. long as you're not breaking their rules and they have to read it and and okay it but um you have to do all the typesetting and all the 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 annoying bits but it becomes yours at the end of it so I looked into it I was like yeah why not and then I had a story I wanted to tell so I say for anyone who wants to try it have a story to tell have a style don't get sucked into like being what you aren't because I I just write how I talk so my mum always says when she's read it she says she's read it she fucking hasn't (laughs) but like when she when she has read my stuff she's like I can hear your, your voice, voice doing right. it. And um, I just say that, keep your voice, give it a go. And um, I think while I was doing it, I literally just had a format I wanted to follow, like a timeline, a brief few bullet points. And then I just gave it a go. Because mm. then while you're writing one bit, you'll remember something that could go before or after. And it becomes really natural because you are just telling a story, but in like writing terms. So I just say, like you said, give it a go. You never know what you're actually capable of until you try it. Yeah. And now I've written two, publishing a third with a football club this year and I'm trying to write a fourth by next year. So Amazing. And I never thought I could and now I'm on potentially my fourth, which is yeah. That's which fantastic. Is well there you go. There's another story into the idea of just, you know, plant down that first brick. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and get get yeah. going and, and and I would imagine you feel better about the AC Milan book than you do the first book. Yeah. That's often the case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I read I read back the first one and I'm like, I'm I want to do it again because I write it. I'm just like, I sound like the most pretentious little asshole <laughs> sometimes <laughs> when I'm writing it because I'm using too many big words that I'm trying to I'm trying to sound something I'm not. Yeah. Whereas the Milan one, it was like I knew this story, I knew it well, and I knew how to tell it. And it was just a case of I imagine sitting down in a pub or like this, just with a mate telling them about the story how would I do it yeah and I just wrote in that way and now we're relaxed in your own work yeah so now when people give reviews on it and stuff like that I can actually I take it a bit more to heart because it's like those are I feel like well both of them's mine but I feel like this one you know really connects with me but then you know everyone has their opinion and I'm just I'm just happy that I was able to tell a story like this which not a lot of writers get to do so yeah it's fantastic mate well done mate you know you should be very proud of yourself and that's what it's about just kind of giving it a go put yourself out there trying to do the best that you can do and uh, you know to kind of come back what you're saying about the sort of the stats and things that Mm. for me the the point of stats is it's about in my medium it's about 
visualizing and painting yeah. a story in a better way. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm just trying to back up what I'm saying, but I'm a like I'm a sort of, you know, a sports documentary like yeah, yeah, geek. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's about the nostalgia and yeah. the feeling and the romance of all of this yeah, stuff. Yeah. And I, I guess that's what led you to this this team and because there, yeah. there is there's something about Italian football Mate. that I think what I find really interesting is as I'm I'm older than you, much older than you. <laughs> and there was sort of this, there was this period where there was this Channel 4 show mm. that a lot of people of a certain age will be aware of. But this team is not that team. No. And it's not from that era. No. And yet there's still such a romance yeah. about this team and Italian football, you know, spanning the different generations. Yeah. There's obviously a main character in all of this. And for those of you who don't know, we've got this far into it. Basically... We uh, we are putting together, hopefully, well, by the time you listen to this, the video will be out, talking about the parallels between this Real Madrid side, obviously under Ancelotti, yep. and the AC Milan side. And that's why we spoke when the book came out, and I did want to get you on the podcast then, but it, the stars didn't align. Mm-hmm. So when we came back round and we we're kind of thinking about the story and the narrative around the use of the diamond formation and yeah. how that is being implemented again and why it's being implemented again. That's where we wanted to kind of, to get you in and, and, and be able to get your sort of say so on this. Yeah. But the main character in all of this isn't Bellingham. No. Nah. It's Ancelotti. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is why this works really, really well. So talk to me about Carlo Ancelotti because obviously a, a fantastic player, mm. an unbelievable manager. Yeah. But he doesn't get but, that recognition he yeah, deserves, in my but opinion. But quite no. a confusing character as well. Yeah. Um. Let's let's start with him as as a as a player. What do you know about him as a player and a person whilst yep. he was a player? Because I imagine people there's always that sort of thread that stays within within you as a person. Yeah. But uh, what was he known as a, as a player? He was you use the term like midfield metronome nowadays. That's but that that is Ancelotti. He was a defensive midfielder by trade, but kind of you know the old school ones. Like we'll get into it, but I hate how nowadays you have to get pigeonholed into that a one role player. Like you can't just be you have to be a battler. You can't just be a all round defensive midfielder. And this mm. guy, he's from the eras of like the Sunesses, the the Brian Robsons. If I was to compare him to someone, I'd probably say Brian Robson. And as a United fan praise doesn't get much higher than comparing him to Robbo but he was a jack of all trades he could really do it all in midfield he started off as all technical midfielders at an advanced position and then he dropped a lot a lot deeper as he moved on in his career but it takes a lot to be in two different halls of fame when you're a player and especially a lot when they're two massive Italian rivals like Roma and Milan so he was at Roma for the, for the majority of his career and then he regressed into a bit more of a defensive disposition when he was at um, at Milan. So he sort of learned through various different managers. He learned under Nils Liedholm, who was an ex-AC Milan legend, Swedish striker, who he was always under managers that let him kind of get on with it and do what he had to do. And he listened to his body and he regressed purely based on the fact he wasn't able to run anymore. Right. And I think in his last season, he wrote in his book, if you haven't read it, Quiet Leadership by Ancelotti, one of the best autobiographies in my opinion. Second to Cruyff, that's the only one. Maybe Sir Alex. But um, you look at what he's saying, he's just like, I knew what my body was telling me things. I just had to listen to it. And then you sort of see when he then becomes a manager, he starts understanding that players know far more about themselves in their body on the pitch than he can 
with a whiteboard and a pen. So he listened, He always listened to players because he always listened to himself. And that's what you see him embody as a manager. Absolutely. And I think that's it. You know, with that, with that book and, and what we kind of learned from him is the, the word quiet. Yeah. I think an ability to be malleable himself yeah. as a person. And I think the word flow comes to mind yeah. a lot of the time when it comes to him and his management. And I think we're seeing different iterations of that and being able to kind of go with it. Yeah. Um, because there are certain managers out there and he's one of the few that isn't really like this that are just very staunch in, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is me, this is what I'm about. Yeah. Ancelotti, again, it's like, it's throughout that book. Yeah. Is the necessity to go with it. Yeah. Like that's, I think, a thing with Ancelotti that, you know, he talks about how generally managers have about three years yeah. and, then, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and then maybe it's best to, to move on. Yeah. In its, you know, in its essence, that feels like a dangerous idea yeah. and actually you should hang on to something. But again, if you go with the flow of yeah, it, yeah, yeah. you will then find yourself going to PSG Chelsea. and then to Chelsea yeah, yeah. and then to Bayern Munich and then make your way back to, you know, go to Real Madrid obviously yeah, yeah. as well. In terms of his early managerial career, yeah. there's some amazing ripple effects, which we'll we'll talk about in just a second. I did want to talk about that AC Milan period in the early 90s yeah. before he is the manager, because yeah. you've got managers and the influence that will, will sort of uh, imprint itself on him. Managers like Capello mm-hmm. and Arrigo Sacchi mm-hmm. are very different to Ancelotti. Yeah. But he was obviously around them. Yeah. Do you think he took anything from those managers in the sort of early part of his career as a manager or do you think it was something that he was totally against um playing styles wise i think he learned he did learn two things from either one i think saki it was just a bit like you get the best players that you can and you let them run free so hullet Rijkaard, van basten you've got otherwise the... known as the harry redknapp role yeah exactly but like god i didn't know we get <laughs> saki to redknapp fair play um but you got three of the best players of all time and saki just knew you don't shackle them down you just let them go on and do what you want and saki didn't even have he wasn't a player and he wasn't really a manager and i remember saki said something in one of his first ever press conferences when he was asked like look you haven't played you haven't managed why are you here and he said oh i didn't know to be a jockey you had to be the horse first <laughs> and he's right because then he went on and just like bought a load of players and backed by berlusconi who we'll, we'll probably talk about him at some point but um yeah he was always he wanted to restore some of the glamour of um ac milan because some of the other teams were starting to overtake them especially uve um, so then Saki comes in uh, kind of late 80s early 90s and just completely revolutionized what they were talking about because it was Italian football the Catanaccio style it was everywhere you didn't get a Rijkaard a Hullet of Ambassador at many teams and this was the foreign player rule you could only have like a certain number and he filled them with Dutch talent so he leaned heavily on Renus Michels and the total football philosophy under Cruyff and then it just took it into the into Technicolor like I say from black and white and then Capello was <laughs> just the opposite so it was a thing under Berlusconi I was surprised learning what I did about him that he went for Capello because Saki made sense. It was fun, exciting. Capello. High line as well. Yeah, a lot high, of things that you see these days. Very high line. There was a story about Saki. Apparently he used to, they had a cage at the, the Marinella training ground and he would sit on top of the cage to understand where the actual line was because he couldn't visualise it from the side. And then he'd know where he was on the side when it came to games and he'd always push them up. But Capello was the opposite. He was like, you listen to me, you stay here, you don't move. But then under Saki, you get couple more European Cups than what you got under Capello. You get more flowing football that people love. But then under Capello, you get 
the biggest ever unbeaten run as a football team. League dominance. 58 games. Yeah. So what, that's nine more games than the Arsenal's Invincibles, wow. but people call Arsenal the Invincible squad. No, it was them. Mm. And they did it in the 90s. So Ancelotti was a player under Capello and um, loosely under Saki at some point because he went to Italy at, at certain points. But he learned from them two complete opposite ends of the spectrum. And I think what he always did was he just learned what worked for him. So the thing with him is he couldn't really decide one or the other because both were almost equally as successful so he learned the spectrum can work but you have to have a good balance so Capella was a defensive manager he had a very good defensive team Saki was an attacking manager he had some of the best attackers in the world so he learned from that I think especially when you get to when he's at Reggiana and Parma what he wanted to do and we'll get to it but there were some times when he had to learn to not be as rigid as Capello or learn to not be as free-flowing as Saki and then he developed his own style but he just can't he had to learn through mistakes the other two didn't really learn by mistakes they had the philosophy and it worked he just had to keep learning on the go and going with the flow like mm. you said it, and humility right like, yeah. it seems to have like a real humility about him yeah um, and maybe that's something that he learned pretty early doors here's a ripple yeah. effect for you Ancelotti's half-time sacking is Juventus's biggest mistake in the last 25 years Ancelotti was Juventus manager from February 20, uh, 1999 to June 2001. He was actually sacked at half-time during their final game of the season at home against Atalanta. This was very strange as Juventus still had a mathematical chance of winning the title. What? It's harsh. Juventus (laughs) even won this match but lost out on the league by two points to Roma, a Roma side managed by... Fabio Capello, yeah. I'm pretty sure. The sacking at halftime may have been Juventus' biggest mistake in recent history, apart from uh, the Calciopoli yeah. scandal, maybe. Ancelotti has shown in his career that he's not adverse to returning to a club that he's been let go mm-hmm. from, Real Madrid being an example of this. So there may have been a chance that he would have returned further along down the line. That is, if they hadn't embarrassed him with a halftime sacking. <laughs> the irony of all of this is Juventus now have a mismatched squad that lacks a lot of things and is abundant with midfielders. We're going to get onto that in just oh, a yeah. second. Uh, the little perfect, literal perfect person for the job would be Ancelotti. Yeah. So talk to me about Ancelotti making his way to AC Milan because, of course, he was a manager prior to that yeah. with a couple of clubs. Um, but the club prior to AC Milan was Juventus. Juventus and it was pretty ugly for him. He should never have gone. It's it's one of them you look at and you just think, because especially when you hear hear from him, he's like, you're so nice. You're just a nice little, I wasn't going to say playful. He's like a jovial, nice man. And you just think you deserve the best that football has to offer. But it reminds me of in a much like larger scale. But you remember when Clough went to uh, Leeds, Leeds and you hear about that and it just was the wrong fit. It, it was that. It was the later version of that, even though they, they did give him a shot. It's because he, you don't employ a Roma and AC Milan legend to go to um, to go to go Juve. It's kind of like when Mourinho came to United. It was like he had his way, but he was never going to be fully loved and accepted by Man United. Mm. Same with them. But <laughs> Italian football, as you've known, have a bit of a way of showing it. Like they will just say what they feel so on his first game they unfurled a banner that said go home you fat pig or something to him in Italian um, and said some horrible things they had a chant and they used to do the when he used no. to yeah. um, and so yeah they knew he, he just shouldn't have gone there but previously he was at Parma and Parma were you know under the Parma lat sponsors and the guys they were building a great team that like Gigi Buffon Lilian Turam Gianfranco Zola we'll get to him in a sec but he had some great players there Hernan Crespo and it was a logical step to get 
second or third, whatever it was with Palmer, and then go to Juve, who are perennial title winners. But he missed the first uh, Serie A title by, I think, maybe two points. And then the second one hurt because it was Roma. I personally think if it wasn't Roma, I don't think they would have gone that hard on him because you got a Roma Hall of Famer. He wasn't in the Hall of Fame then, but mm. you have a Hall of Famer at Roma who's letting them win the title. Yeah. It, it's all started to play into the narrative. But the halftime second is true. He said it was true. But um, at the time, I think... Um, it all went if Juve had won and Roma had lost because Roma went on to win by two points, so they needed them to lose. Um, so Juve went one 0 up uh, early on. I think Del Piero scored, and then Atlanta, who they were playing, got an equaliser before half time. Meanwhile, Roma were ahead. So I'm not trying to justify it, but like you probably think like they're going to go on and win. Yeah. And then, but it was only one nil. And then I think it was two nil by the stroke of half time at the at the Roma game. So you just think it's dead and buried. Um, and you come and they come in and basically said you're going to lead the team out, but after that you're never going to manage us again. And that is true. Um, the funny thing is, yeah, they went out and won the game and just mathematically lost by two points. But he said it's funny in the social media era. You're like, what can you say? What can't you say? He came out in his post match conference and said that's the last game I'm doing for Juve because he's already spoken to them. So talk about throwing under the bus. He just did that with them, but. Do you think, and forgive me, anyone who mm. is Italian, uh, if uh, if I'm getting this totally wrong, stereotyping, whatever, is Ancelotti sort of not the antithesis, but is he? He's not overly Italian, despite the eyebrow. Yeah, he's not overly Italian. Mm. Do Do you know what I mean like, by that? Do you mean like the fieriness of him or the, the fire? Again, the sort of like it's almost like a hippie nature to yeah. him, like, because again, if something like, like that Jackson. happens. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. definitely a Phil Jackson. He is like a Phil Jackson, definitely, yeah. Definitely. So many parallels between the two of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if any of you guys don't know, Phil Jackson was the uh, coach of Chicago Bulls and LA Lakers, won 11 rings, maybe, I think it's something yeah. like that. Yeah. That's the title of his book, yeah. It's 11, 11 rings, rings yeah, that's yeah. it. I was going to say, I've read his book. It's, and it is, book, yeah. it's very much about letting go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because I think something like that, yeah. and, you know, you know, if we fast forward a little bit, as Rory will always let us know yeah, that yeah, yeah. he was sacked in the tunnel after just missing out on the title yeah. for Chelsea as well. That could have led to a lot of bitterness, conspiracy yeah. that, you know, that the Juventus fans are kind of like planting on him really yeah. instead of instead of any kind of real truth of what's occurring here. Yeah. But again, he wouldn't, you know, would he be able to kind of move on and have the success that he had if he, if he's more... I get what you're saying. Hot-blooded, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think he had like... More Conte. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think he had... Again, I might be kind of doing what you were just about to do, but I think there's a there's a little bit of insecurity in people when they are that fiery and they are reactive. With him, I think he was so secure in what he's achieved and what he thought and what he did that when these things happened, it was kind of just like, my time will come. And each time he was proved right, mm. like is, as a player a and point. as a, a is manager. It, is he a great example of the right side of being uh, an ex-player yes. who's had a, a great career? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think often there's a feeling that these players can't, and maybe you just need to be able to get those top jobs pretty quickly. Yeah. He, Palmer, they had a lot of money to spend, yeah, so they, they did, had yeah. great players, right? But then he had Reggiano when yeah, he started out. That's and he true. Had that's to fly true. His trade, yeah. But yeah, without those experiences as a player, does he like normally? I think there's a there's a disappointment. You know, Glenn Hoddle talks about it a lot mm. in terms of him being able to do stuff that the players couldn't. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of players that kind of had that mindset and yeah. have, have found frustration in that. Yet somehow again, he he just the temperament yeah. is striking, isn't it? He has one of the best temperaments ever in the history of football for me because there isn't really a case of 
even Fergie, like we know about the hairdryer, like now he's a lovely, jovial old man, but you know he has an edge. So Bobby Robson had an edge. All these guys that you depict in the media as nice and calm, they always had it, but you don't get many players coming out and saying, oh, Ancelotti went in on me. You probably had, he yeah. probably had to. But then when you get, he knew how to be a man manager. And I think it's really irritating when I hear the phrase man manager, even though I just said it. It's like, that's what that's what the man part of a manager is <laughs> right, supposed right, to be. Right. You're saying man twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I get su- what you mean. You're supposed to be a people person and understand how egos and people work. And managers forget that. I think he's a dying breed of truly great managers because we moved into a tactical era where everything yeah. is just... I'm a United fan. We talk about Ten Hag's like philosophy. What's his philosophy? What's this? It's like, why can't he just go and... It- and ex- let the players express themselves like yeah. every great manager has. We don't let them do that now. And Ancelotti is still doing it at the top level with some of the best players. We'll get onto what he, he can achieve at Real Madrid with what he's got. But he's proven time and time again, you just, you trust them as men. You say to them, I've got you on this side. You have me on that side and we'll move. And he always did it. And he was always successful. It's like nowhere he's been, he hasn't. Maybe Juve was the worst one mm. because he didn't really win anything at Juve. But then Milan, Chelsea, Bayern... Real Madrid twice was always successful. Do you think that, and I can't stop seeing the Phil Jackson thing now, <laughs> yeah. but do you think that white hair he's unable <laughs> to have outrageous longevity anywhere because he's kind of a sort of wave manager, if that makes sense? So he kind of come, like, he sees what he's got, like yeah. making its way and he will ride that wave. But yeah. inevitably, without being able to sort of push the water the way that you want to Mm. you have to just go with it and it will naturally peter out because i guess we're in that sort of there's a sort of a new wave has just sort of arisen when it comes to real madrid now that is allowing him to almost like get stick with me get the water moving a little bit because he was able to ride the wave so well with uh, a group of players who were getting older that it's not on him to uh, motivate mm. he's actually just taking out and putting in new pieces yeah that are motivated and young and hungry and all those things yeah, yeah, yeah. and so that's a kind of allowing him to kind of go again whereas yeah. the pep guardiolas the fergies the the clops they're far more about galvanizing in a very different way yeah and what I would say is the he's very keen on the mental the mentality of footballers and the dressing room, and he's always got a really nice balance there. And it, he, this is where I'll draw. He's very similar with Fergie because I remember Fergie used to keep the class of '92 for ages, even though they weren't going to play. And that's why when I look at the Man, I'm not saying one's right or wrong. I I just prefer this. Is if he was a manager of Man City and they went on and did what they did, he wouldn't dare let Gundogan go. Right. He would have stayed. Yeah. Because he then when he's bringing someone through, he's like, learn off him. Yeah. He knows what he's doing. I'm just the, the you know the person saying I'm the teacher he's actually mm-hmm. doing what I'm telling him to do so and he's done that with Real Madrid when they've kept the reason they keep Modric and they keep Cruz is not just because they're amazing footballers of that it helps, that helps yeah. but like they have been there and done that Modric knows what it's like to be called the worst ever La Liga signing to go on to win a Ballon d'Or like Cruz knows what it's like to be doubted and be like the least German German player like when he was at Leverkusen and Bayern to being one of the best metronomes at at thingy under one of the best metronomes of all time. So he knows what that's like. And I think he is 
awesome at recruitment and that's something that doesn't really get talked about enough and i try to emphasize it in in the book he knows what blend he needs he knows the profile he needs and he goes and gets them and he's when he's been in situations where he can't have that either when chelsea were going through a bit of a transition with the likes of what scolari and village boas and then then him but then at psg he got it right because they gave him what he needed um and he didn't really ask for a lot now he's at real madrid and i think what he's been given and the players at his disposal it's probably the best array of players that he might ever have in the midfield area for sure so only time remains to be seen but if precedent is anything to go by then sky's the limit for him and what he can do with these lot Ancelotti obviously gets the job at AC Milan. Mm. Milan's lack of trophies is what got Ancelotti the AC Milan job. Yeah. Uh, he got the job five months after being sacked by Juventus in yeah. 2001. Mm-hmm. At the time, he was inheriting a recently trophyless team in Milan with their last Scudetto coming in 1999. Yeah. But that sounds like not long ago, but <laughs> I think they'd been so dominant in yeah, the 90s. Yeah, yeah. That that was um, pretty disappointing. Ancelotti took over from Fatih Terim, mm-hmm. who was sacked for poor results. Interestingly, Terim's poor results came from using the four-three-one-two diamond yeah, formation yeah. that he had been using at his previous team, Fiorentina. Yeah. So, let, we'll come back to the diamond. Yeah. I want to talk personnel. You talk about recruitment there. Mm-hmm. Talk me through the personnel that he s- steps into. Mm-hmm initially at AC Milan who who is there when he he arrives so he is in the middle of a transition at at Milan and doesn't really know it so he gets there and there's too many strikers probably not enough goalkeepers the defense isn't great and getting older and the midfield is okay that's that's probably what I'd say he stepped into um and yeah so I think when Capello left I think he went to Madrid and then you've got or he took a hiatus then went to Madrid and he's got like maybe five managers that came out and in between 97 and 2001 you had Saki come back for a bit you had Capello come back for a bit and they both flopped (laughs) they really did flop you had Alberto Zaccaroni who came from um, Udinese just didn't really know what he was doing Uh, you had a load of caretaker managers including Maldini's dad Cesare of course he came back for a bit yeah and he promoted Paolo so a bit of nepotism but it worked and then um then you had Tarim so Tarim was he was a funny one because there's a, there's a documentary on him um, on Netflix. Brilliant. It's just called Tarim. It's, it's fantastic. But he was one of those players that just, one of those managers that every player loved. He'd put his arm around you. He'd say, you know, you're doing all right. You could get spanked 8-0. He's like, you're doing a right. man nudger. Yeah. If you will. See? So he did. Yeah. No okay. more man-mans. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, he was just like one of those kind of guys and um, everyone loved him. But at Fiorentina, he always fell out with the board because he was a he was fan orientated. He was he wanted fun. He wanted electricity, and he was very eccentric himself. So you could love him or hate him, depending on which side of the defence you sat. He comes to Milan on the basis that Fiorentina did brilliantly under him. He's only there for a season, but he emphasised when Rui Costa and Gabriel Battistuta was there. He was like just do whatever the hell you want and mm. rightly so they went on and had a great season didn't quite get the second was it yeah didn't yeah. quite get it and then batty went on to roma and won it which was which was a shame for fiorentina um but in doing so he brought Rui costa with him and when he did that he sort of began to elevate it a bit so the 4-3-1-2 
the one was there for Rui Costa and the three were there to accommodate Rui Costa. And he knew that. It was like he wasn't trying to make him what he wasn't. He was trying to stick to what he knew a little bit. And um, there were some great players in there. I think Shevchenko would have been there by that time. He joined in 99 uh, for 30 million from Kiev. Uh, you had a... Paolo Maldini coming through, like starting to really assert himself um, like he did under Capello. Goalkeepers, not great. Uh, midfield still needed maybe two or three more bodies in there. But then Pirlo came not long after that because I think there was something going on with Inter. Like Pirlo was signed from Inter, there was something going on there. So Ancelotti all of a sudden comes in off the basis that a bunch of managers couldn't get them to work. But he looked at what he had and he knew who was going to stay and who was going to go. So he was just as ruthless getting players out as he was bringing players in. And he he's a fiddler with age. Like he doesn't like to always rely on older players. He wants at least someone to give them competition. So the very first player he signed, all that he was keen on signing was Alessandro Nesta. That was probably the one that stands out to me as one of the best signings ever because it was opportunistic. It was a bit, not predatory, it was a bit vulture-like how he got him. But um, Nesta, for me, is just like, you know, there's certain... So how, how did they get Nesta? Yeah, so he was um, he was at Lazio, but Lazio were going through a crappy spell with their finances and they just had to sell off their best players. Like at the time, I think they had Varon, Nedved, maybe Crespo, Crespo was there, Nesta, Stam. So they had the makings of a great team. They did win the Scudetto, but... Um, like Nest- under Sven, I think. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And um, Nesta was one of them where he was a boyhood Laziali. He loved Lazio. So, and he was the captain. So it's not easy to take away their best player and the captain at 23 or 24 years old. So they had to pay big money. It was like 30 odd million quid, but Berlusconi didn't care. It was like, he makes sense. So you go and get him. But um, I was surprised to know that he was, A, that he was captain and that he came because you think, captain of a rival will he settle in and he just fit like a glove because there was no real out and out center back like him like they had like Pancaro and they had Favali and they had Costa Curto who could play in loads of positions but mm. just one center back who you could build the defense around that was him because even Maldini was a left back he only became a center back later on so he had Nesta there and as soon as he saw him he was like yeah you that's you you yeah. go and do what you got to do and um and for those who don't remember Nesta Nesta kind of goes under the radar a little bit because even say like 2006, yeah. you've got someone like Cannavaro who kind of steals the show because he's just like really good looking and wins. Like <laughs> and he's short. Player of the year. And he's short. So there's a bit wow. more story How there. Could he yeah. Do it? yeah, absolutely. But Nesta was really good for ages. Oh, man. <laughs> he, you might agree with this. I don't know, but like there's certain players where forget words, you just need noises. You know, Nesta. I'm just like, <laughs> that's yeah. it. Like with him, he was. Good looking, like a great looking man, by the way. Like long hair, it's a bit slimy. The hair, I'll be honest. Did you think? Yeah, a little the headband, though. but yeah, good looking guy. No, good looking you. guy, but he was very suave, very sophisticated. Yeah. You couldn't imagine him like getting angry. You just thought he just knew what he was doing. I think that that's the what I would say. Yeah, there, there was a silence. Yeah, about him, he was an Ancelotti player through and through. Yeah, just sort of got on with it. Yeah. Wasn't really sort of you know diving in, munching things, anything no. like that. Just kind of getting the job done quite quietly. Yeah. That's what made him absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So the players were all there. And as I've been sort of looking at this AC Milan side, and what we're talking about in terms of the confusion is that in terms of Serie A titles, Mm -hmm. there could have been more. Yeah. In terms of Champions Leagues, you know, you've got 2003, you've got 2005, you've got 2007. The one that you would have gone, they'll definitely win that one, is the one that they, they don't win. Yeah. 
But throughout it, this diamond formation reveals itself. Mm-hmm. Now, as we said, uh, Fatih Tarim had tried this, yeah. and uh, I think even with Galatasaray after that, I think his last game charge for them yeah. uh, in 2022, he was using the diamond. So he did it always with with Turkey as well. Like Turkey right. used the diamond quite a lot because I think it was, was it Galatasaray Turkey Galatasaray right. and just kept. But Turkey, he did a lot of the diamond, and it just never really worked. So. This idea of the diamond is just something that we haven't seen a lot of no. in recent years. So talk me through that team mm-hmm. and explain the diamond and why it worked for this group of players. And obviously there's a few interchangeable names along the way. Yeah, we'll just go through the back five quick because they didn't really feature in the, the diamond eventually. But you had Dida in goal, who I loved him, but really, was he? Was he I was never really feeling him, I'll be honest. Did you not? Yeah, I wasn't really, I didn't, oh, I it felt like him. there was a bit of a mistake there. I oh, was not. Right. But that's why I liked him though. Like, Because <laughs> yeah. if you had to say, give me your favourite 11, Dida's in there. Not my best. Right. He was just nuts. He was massive, big, athletic, like that kind of guy. But he was always very loud and eccentric and brash. So he was intimidating. Dida was very intimidating. But then you got Maldini on the left, who, greatest defender of all time for me. Il Pendolino Cafu on the right, which is, what's it called? The train engine, steam engine, whatever it is, uh, signed from Roma. Ironically, he was, do you know where he was going to go before AC Milan and before they got him? Yokohama's Marinos in really? Japan. He was 33 when they got him. No. Yeah. So already in the Roma Hall of Fame. And then he got a call from Ancelotti to say, do you want to come? And he obviously said, yeah. Stayed for five years and wow. finished when he was 38. And then the two in defence, we've already talked about Nesta, but you said there about Nesta's not the guy to crunch and be brash and to be inesthetic. You probably had the best person for that in Yapstam next to him. Again, he was a victim of the Lazio crap. Like he came for a lot cheaper, but I think he had a drug scandal at the time. Um, Nandrolone was the name of the drug, and he got caught by the Olympic Committee for a number of uh, months. He was suspended, eventually suspended for about one or two. But then, yeah, Lazio just said we can't put up with that. We have to let you go and all this stuff. And then they went to crap. Uh, but he comes alongside Nesta, who technically they both were employed by Lazio at the same time, but never played together because of the ban. Comes to Milan, and it just all all worked out. But then, yeah, the diamond kind of comes in because one of the players who was there was Gattuso before. Um, Ancelotti had got there. Now, Gattuso was still... Only when he got to Milan did he actually find his character as a footballer because he was at Perugia and Salernitana. Then he went to Rangers, Rangers, which was... You don't see that now, really. I wish we did. I wish we saw more of that. Just, like, prove yourself in a tough league. But then when you had, I think, at that team, they had Ali Bacoist, I think Brian Laudrup, uh, Gascoigne, of course. So you've got all those attacking players. If you're going to fit, you can't be one of them. You've got to do something to get in here. Walter Smith was a bit more know your role and stick to it mm. classic scottish manager very good one then he learned to get that bit of a dog in him in the the um the rangers brigade because in his first old firm he got he got a yellow card in about eight minutes and he he heard the crowd and they loved it and he was like yeah okay and then gascoigne kept on ribbing on him about it and he developed his thing so you had the perfect base of a diamond there he doesn't really fit in a 4-3-1-2 no matter what because he's going to sink naturally lower so already if you've got a sink in D- dm you've got two midfielders and a cam if we assume the cam at the beginning was Rui costa which is who it was then that's a natural cam you've got a natural dm and natural cam so the other two they can't what you're gonna you can't have a four two 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 you're gonna you're gonna have to balance well, you can it out. well you can <laughs> but not like in the only middle. in germany yeah only in germany <laughs> not in not in italy that's for sure but yeah. like he had to get a balance in there and he already had pirlo and he learned that well pirlo learned like on the job because he was at brescia he started off at brescia then he went to um, Inter and it never worked out for him at Inter because he was a cam. 
Pirlo was a natural cam, which you don't think of now. But then he went back on loan to Brescia where they had Roberto Baggio. We'll get on to him in a sec because Angelotti learns from him. But he was like, well, Baggio's here. I can't be another one. And the manager there, another Carlo, Carlo Mazzoni, said, this is your role. Work it. I think you can do it. Deep line playmaker. Run the channels when you're young and see what you can do. Because he was a great runner. People forget how fit he was. Like, yeah. He was fit and he was a handsome man. Yeah. He was very physically fit as well. And so he... Just not quick. That's never quick. Thing. He's just no. not quick. But very smart. Trot about. Yeah. But very smart. He'd be naturally ahead of where a quicker player would be. So yeah. he could always get in there. And a very courageous guy as well. So you had him. And then the player that Ancelotti recognised was lacking in that was probably a bit of energy. Because Gattuso had energy. Maybe a bit too much in his head. And he, would, he was a very hot-headed player. So he needed calm. He needed structure. And he needed someone who prove that they were they had the mentality so in 95 Ajax the famous young Ajax team under Van Gaal beat Milan uh, Ancelotti was in and around that time and a young Clarence Seedorf was one of the ones who lifted the trophy along with Cliver Davids and everyone they did buy Davids and he just never worked out but um because Gattuso was there but Seedorf was for me most underrated player ever for me um he could do everything and that's exactly what he needed so when you've got that diamond there if you think you've got Rui Costa, you do what you need to do. Gattuso, you let them do what they need to do. Pirlo, don't be an idiot. Just like take take it deep when you can, but don't leave Gattuso exposed because you know what he's like. Mm. But then don't worry if he's not there, Sadif will be there. So there was this mutual trust with everyone there that you just thought you couldn't break through that. So it naturally became a diamond because that's where they played. Yeah, and I think that's really important to say because the sort of interchangeability mm -hmm. of Pirlo and Gattuso... Mm. Because Sadov's actually both of them. Yeah, he is. Isn't he? Yeah. But Perlo is a, a, a sort of an extreme version of mm -hmm. one side of, of a player and Gattuso is the extreme version of the other. And again, in certain scenarios, you want Perlo further ahead so he can get the ball in those half spaces because yeah. he's got that quickness of mind, that brilliant technical ability and the ability to pick out a pass as well. Mm -hmm. But also sometimes you want to be able to allow him to drop deep deep and pick up the ball and so you might need someone ahead of him yeah. to again press the opposition and be a sort of bit of more of an old school box-to-box -box midfielder yeah. and to so, carry it and like to carry was a great ball carrier as right well. sorry and but i was saying gattuso could go and do those oh, yeah. defensive yeah, yeah, yeah. um elements as well so although you know when you think diamond you obviously see a diamond and you see players in certain positions yeah. the, the interchangeability of those three in particular yeah. was really really important and actually something where due to the the sort of list of skills that were needed it's something that i think gets lost a little yeah. bit because cafu for example so crucial mm -hmm. because of the ability to get up and down and up and down because yeah. it's a very narrow formation it's a formation that is you know obviously you've got a lot of players in central areas that leave space out wide yeah. but you also need people to drag out the opposition otherwise it's going to be very easy for teams to sort of defend in front of their goal yeah, yeah, so yeah. someone like cafu and his energy despite yeah, being yeah. the age that he was yeah is absolutely astounding, yeah. really. Maldini, again, probably forgotten about a little bit in terms of his attacking abilities yeah. as well. Like, so, so complete. And again, it comes back to what you're saying, where if you're good at everything, mm -hmm. you end up getting, like, people sort of snowblind to your yeah. to your brilliance. Yeah. And Maldini was the best left-back in the world. Yeah. And the best left-sided centre-back <laughs> in the world. Yeah. And the best, yeah, but part of a two if you left wanted him to back. be as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. He, was, he started off as a winger. 
he had to That's be brought right. back by his dad. His right. dad was actually the manager when he first came through. So there's a lot of nepotism in Italian football, but like he was actually brought back. Cesare was a great player as well. Mm. Daniel, unfortunately, is probably the worst one. But I think when, um, yeah, he started off as a left winger, but he naturally kept on coming deep. And so he just said, try it and left back, see how you are. And he could actually tackle. And he was tall. He was like six foot tall for a left. Like he was a tall left back, very athletic, always looked after himself, finished when he was like 40 odd, 42, I think, as his last game. And he was just, yeah, just, per- just the perfect left back. But, he was always people forget Cafu you think you picture him you think yeah bombing down the wing and doing the Carlos Alberto Danny Alves type role Maldini you think just calm suave like stay at the bat don't make a mistake nah he was yeah he was on his way he could bomb his way down for sure watch the 2005 game which we'll get to and you'll see how great he was so we get to the two strikers Mm -hmm. now this again where there are other people who are playing a part in this and again I think Ancelotti's ability to find the like half spaces of life uh, is is quite important here right mm. because it was actually Silvia, uh, Silvio Berlusconi mm-hmm. that introduced the diamond to the Milan side mm, sort of so <laughs> he said I'll send a letter from Monday any Milan coach will be obliged to pay play with at least two strikers it's yeah. not a request it's an obligation said Berlusconi at least two strikers he demanded this yeah. of Ancelotti yeah. and so again Ancelotti was willing to do that mm-hmm. and we'll talk about that personnel in time but he didn't want to play two no. up front did he no. why did he not want to play two up front because he was a bit more i he became a bit of a midfield man when he was at parma because he started understanding that he the way he played he kind of started when you look at his recruitment a bit he kind of wanted someone who's a bit more like him and none of the guys he had at milan were like him like pirlo maybe be the closest but he was a mix of pirlo and gattuso really because he could put it about so he wanted a bit more in the midfield or maybe just to have another creative player because of what he'd learned he needed at, at Parma. So this is where the ripple comes in because at Parma, he had to learn the whole... Now you you hear, you hear me talking about Rui Costa, we'll get on to the famous Kaká. But then before, when he was at um, <laughs> when he was at Parma, he had Gianfranco Zola there and he played a rigid 4-4-2 everywhere he went. And he made Zola play either shadow striker or like left uh, left forward. So shadow striker might have worked, but he wanted them advanced because it was a, the way he's, he'd seen it under Lildholm and everyone else. And then he had no place for Zola. So you think, what, probably one of the best trickle-teasters of all time? And he <laughs> said, no, nah, it's not for me. He pissed them off to, to Chelsea and was like, yeah. And then Zola became Zola. And... Um, he did it again. So he didn't learn from the Zola one straight away. He was like, maybe I'll try something new. But he had the chance to sign Roberto Baggio when he was at um, at Parma. And he said no, because he was like, again, he's like another Zola. He won't fit in. He'll be, you know, the, the ponytail. I don't like it. It's all different. I don't. And then Baggio goes to Bologna, bags 22 goals, and they finish six points behind Parma, who were going for the title. So he was like, ah. All right, maybe there's something in this. And then I, I honestly think when you get to Milan and you had Costa, the amount of money they spent on him was like 30, nearly 40 million euros at the time of fucking loads of money, especially for, for Serie A. Mm. And um, he gets him there and you just think you can't bench him or sell him. He was in his prime. He was like 28, 29 when he got there. For, for him, that was his prime. And you just think, I can't let him go, especially when Berlusconi's out there writing all this. So I was like, all right, I've got him now. I've got these lot. They make sense. So the strikers just kind of came about when he already had Shevchenko there and he thought Shevchenko was the one to just create more stuff for. He, I honestly think he would have been quite happy 
to have another creator alongside Costa just to feed Shevchenko. But then if Shevchenko got injured, then that's a problem. And he had injury problems at Parma with Chiesa because he was, he was getting older. So he's like, okay, I need someone I can trust now. This is where, this is one the, the nicest bit of recruitment I like from him because it wasn't really about, it was about quality. It was still a quality player, but he was like, okay, I've got this now. I need someone I can trust to bring the best out of Shevchenko and also possess some qualities that maybe he didn't have, but I knew would give it his all and had a bit of bite. So Hernan Crespo was the perfect guy. He was a bit taller. Again, very suave, very sophisticated striker, but he came from River Plate. So the man had some, like, he had a dog in him. When he was at River Plate, he was insane. And then he went to Parma, struggled for ages. There were press releases saying he was crap and Ancelotti's crap for bringing him. Why'd you do it? Stuck by him sold him for 30-odd mil to Lazio and then bought him on loan when he went to Chelsea. And, um, and then he comes here. He was only on loan for the 2005 season and he played in the Champions League finals. So it was enforced, definitely enforced. He didn't like it. He, but the other option was John Dahl Thomason, who was there, the big Danish striker. And he was like, you're just a bit too big. You're a bit too gangly, a bit too static. I need someone who's a bit more mobile. And that's exactly what Crespo was. And then Thomason pissed off and really didn't play much under under Angelotti for the next year. We've spoken about a lot of players here, mm. but what brings it back to Real Madrid and whether does feel like an interlocking of you know basically 20 years of management and feel like we've come back full circle is what is is Kaka yeah and the influence of him in this diamond because Ancelotti clearly wanted to play two playmakers in his team because the risk of playing one meant there was a lot of pressure on the single 10 to make things happen yeah Kaka's debut season was the 2003-2004 season, and this is one of the defining seasons in Ancelotti's time mm-hmm. at Milan, if not his whole career. This was the season where the diamond truly came into play, of course. Milan rot- rotated between 4-3-1-2 and 4-3-2-1 during the season, also known as the diamond versus the Christmas tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk to me about Kaka and what he possessed, because... We can run through this Real Madrid team and you can see the different players that provide the different roles of this AC Milan that we've seen. And and I think for different people listening to this, they'll go, hang on, it wasn't that player, it was this player, Mm -hmm. because we're kind of merging together five, six, seven years of of players. And so, you know, you've run through quite a few names there. We haven't even got to Kaka because Kaka came in a little bit later on. And as I was talking about earlier, when you've got the 2003 team was was obviously very, very good and won the Champions League. Mm. 2005 team had Kaka at his best. It was a better team. And actually, probably by 2007, it was all about Kaka, right? In terms of the overall power and potency of the team, the 2005 team that doesn't win that Champions League somehow is the one that, like, you know, was the best. But mm-hmm. Kaká did take it on to, to the next level. If you think of that midfield and you think of Real Madrid now, mm-hmm. you've got Gattuso, who's the runner, the destroyer, box-to-box. That's Camavinga. Clarence Seydorf is the guy who could do it all going both ways. Valverde. Mm-hmm. Perlo, the controller at the base of it all, Chiumeni. And Kaká, the attacking threat with a free role to do as they want. Sounds a lot like... Bellingham. Yeah. Now I know I'm English and I know <laughs> it's easy for me to get excited about him. Mm. But for those listening to this who don't remember Kaka, explain to them the brilliance of this man. Oh, there's gonna be another noise. 
coming out. I can feel it. Kaka is just like a, another good looking one, isn't it? Honestly, Kaka just he's just a like what? Because what, yeah, I would ugh, ugh, like I would just say watch him. Like the boy was he he's the kind of guy. I think I wrote this phrase in my book. I don't know if the editor took it out. But it was like, um, he's the kind of person you'd want your daughter or your son to bring home. Like he was just, he was a very, he was about Christian. He was a good, good guy. Like he was built on good morals. And the reason we call him Kaka, because his real name's Ricardo. Um, I don't know what his last name is, but his real name's Ricardo. And um, his young brother couldn't say Ricardo when he was growing up, like very, like when he was a toddler. And so he kept saying, Ka, Ka, and he put Kaka on the back. And the first number he ever got was 22. That's why he never left it, except when he went to Madrid and they should never have done. It's a shame he went to Madrid in the end, but it is what it is. But um, Kaka was just, he's, you see this now with young players who just aren't scared of anything. Kaka was the epitome of fearlessness when it came to a cam because he was just, he could do it all. He wasn't a very, he wasn't a great tackler. He didn't need to be. He wasn't, he also wasn't lazy. He wasn't like a Cantona or a, like a, a hoddle or whatever. He would just, he would give his all and he would press and he would do all the things that a modern player you'd expect of him. Insanely fit, like very good, um, like physical qualities, very good mentally. And just a bit, he had that bit of boyishness about him that he would just try shit all the time and just see what works. But, under Ancelotti, he let him do that. And the reason Kaka was so good is because he had two players, two people, Carlo Ancelotti and Rui Costa. Because Rui Costa, in his first ever training session with Kaka, he um, trained with him, he came off the bench. And Ancelotti always does this. He'll consult his players and say, what did you think? He did it in the Champions League final. Like that, A huge picture came out with him talking to Cruz and, and Modric. But he did it with Costa on the first training session at the Maranello. And he says, oh, what do you think of him? He's, he's all right, isn't he? And didn't even say anything. And then Rui Costa said, you need to play him ahead of me and speaks to Rui it speaks to the kind of player he was he was always a selfless player he didn't he didn't care for the plaudits at all to be fair really good man as well with the things he said after retiring but he automatically became a mentor for him on the pitch so he had an on-pitch mentor and he had an off-pitch one in Ancelotti because it's a boy coming from like you know Santos and he needs to go um or wherever he can, Sao Paulo and he needs to like fit into Milan it's all these things start to play into it and that's sure. why I look at Bellingham he's a brummy lad who needs to fit in Madrid it's not easy to do that and we forget the mental thing that that takes on you like wait why did he lose his fearlessness why Sancho all this all this stuff is struggling it's they're human and mm. Ancelotti was perfect at treating them like human beings he needed Costa and he needed him so Kaka when you watch him you just see not someone who's running around with his head cut off he knows what he wants to do but it's like he knows the goal and he plays like someone who knows that everyone trusts him to do that because when he gets the ball you hear the stadium lift you hear everyone like get onto him and you're like yeah let's do it and um Galliani, the sporting director throughout Milan's best time under Ancelotti, he said there's three players who are loved universally in Milan, Baresi, Maldini, Kaka. It's like, that's a fucking good bunch to, to be in. But um, I think Bellingham, like I'm English as well, like, I want Bellingham to, to be what he can be. But I've not, I've seen people get compared to Kaka a lot. And I always stood bad and said, he's nothing like him. Like I hold Kaka in a very, very high thing. Like forget, yeah, he won the Ballon d'Or and all this, but you watch him and you realise how great. He ruined us, Man United, a couple of times. And what he did in the 2005, 2007 just speaks for itself. But Bellingham is the very first player that I will say has a higher ceiling than, than Kaka because of his more all-round game. But 
don't pigeonhole him into this position or you need to do more of it. Don't just shut up. Let <laughs> him be who he needs to be because no one said that to Kaka and look how great he was and Bellingham can go even further for me. The only thing, I, I have to disagree with you a little bit because I get, I get what you mean in terms of the shadow being too much. Mm-hmm. I actually think there's some learnings from Kaka that Bellingham can take on. Mm. I, I don't think they're similar mentally. I feel like Kaka is a bit nicer, a bit kinder. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when we're talking about them as players, mm. with Kaka, I often think of uh, Pro Evo. Yeah. Because I, and I think of if you imagine playing Pro Evo and you're playing against a team where they're like nowhere near your level. And so you've kind of, got, it almost feels a bit like you've got this 16 year old playing against 12 year olds. Yeah. That was Kaka for a couple of years there mm. at AC Milan. And, and crucially, because of the system a little bit, that it provided space out wide to mm-hmm. a point from that central starting point to be able to get on the ball, but places to go. Yeah. And places to go verti- uh, vertically as well, which I think is really important mm-hmm. here. And so when you bring it to Bellingham, Bellingham is moving from a box to box midfielder that we, you know, a Gerard kind of player. Mm-hmm. And Kaka is more of a kind of is more of a sort of striker turning into mm. the the cam, if that makes sense. Yeah. So there's a gracefulness that I believe Kaka has or had over Bellingham, yeah. and I don't see Bellingham getting there to that. But in terms of that ability to have the sort of brute force to understand what needs to be done, and for the environment that you're in due to the formation that's being played mm-hmm. to allow for you to to for it to be turned into somewhat of a playground game mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah 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 i think there is a there is a there is a real possibility here of bellingham doing something pretty frightening yeah what could be a problem is that he then goes back into an england team yeah. where you've got we're trying to find a way so Kane can fit in and Trent can fit in and and all these different players can mm-hmm. can fit in if i'm in the england manager i build this team around bellingham yeah. and you let that be and you let that be the next 10 15 years yeah. right so that's where i'd like obviously the the period of time which leads to the the romance that leads to you having the desire to write this yeah, book yeah. the sort of epicenter of it is Kaka yeah. and his brilliance, I would suggest. Yeah. And then it's surrounded by this beautiful floral arrangement yeah, yeah, yeah. of a 34-year-old Brazilian <laughs> yeah, and yeah. like re- loads of really hot Italian <laughs> yeah, people yeah, that we've yeah. discussed about the loads. So, again, you, AC Milan, and, and then no team will ever be the same no. as each other, but, you know, tactics are there for a reason. And so I think with Ancelotti, what he's seeing now, mm-hmm. and I hadn't thought about this until he said it, Kaka comes in, he has Rui Costa as that yeah, guy yeah. by his side. Yeah. I think you could imagine Ancelotti is doing the same 100%. for Chouameni, for yeah. uh, all of these players yeah. with Modric yeah. and Cruz. And they still feel um, important. This AC yeah. Milan side that I can't remember which Champions League it was, one of the three, they have the oldest, I think it's 2007 That's actually. Be seven, yeah. They have the oldest team ever to be assembled for a Champions League final. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, feel free to come back on me on this. But the, I think they're not the same. They're mm. not the same. No. But they're, they're kind of the same. <laughs> there's I, similarities. There's huge similarities, but they're not the same. And the only reason I say they won't is because Kaka was... 
I can't say it's difficult because I can't. I'm judging Kaka on his whole career when we're judging Bellingham when he's yet to even. Well, get take that to take that away then. Let's yeah. let's let's chop it off to the AC Milan AC Milan top level mm-hmm. Kaka. Um, and I guess like what are we trying to achieve here in terms of comparing these two? Like, are we going on a stylistic level? Or are we going on a success level? Mm. Let's let's start with style. Style, yeah. Okay. I would I would suggest that. There is far more uh, grace in Kaka than there is in Bellingham. Bellingham's still probably figuring out his body, which is frightening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think a bit I think more Kaka, gangly, right? Yeah, I think Kaka was a lot more nicer to watch, more aesthetic than Bellingham for sure, because he would glide past more and elegant, he would do yeah. that. Because he had that fearlessness to sort of do that. The fearlessness that they both have kind of comes in two different forms, if you think, because like Kaka would just see someone and breeze past him, score. Yeah, Bellingham's not there yet, but what he will do is if someone's confronting him or if he's getting into a 50 50 tackle i'm sorry i love kaka he's jumping out of that tackle bellingham is jumping in so and but then you've got the intelligence that both of them had again it's a different kind of intelligence like bellingham what i hope he'll start to learn especially with real madrid in the champions league and things is knowing when to take a game by the scruff of its neck and drag it there's a lot of players that don't know when to do that like gascoigne was amazing at doing that but if bellingham can learn you don't have to keep running and do stuff for the cameras and just Take your time, learn the ebbs and flows of the game and go when the tide is with you and, mm. and run with it. Or even be that person to change the tide and let your teammates come. That's what Kaka was amazing at because he knew how to read a stadium. He knew how to read a game. And if you watch, I'd, I'd implore anyone to... Don't watch 2005. It's, it's horrible. It's, it's Liverpool. It's, it's, you don't need to watch. Everyone's seen it. But watch 2007. I don't, I've, I'm surprised that when I released it how many people didn't watch the 2007 final because it's not it's not as big a story as obviously Istanbul of course but it goes to Athens and you see the game is sort of constantly on a knife edge and I've never I've never felt tension like it watching it I knew how it ended I'm in 2020 I know they won yeah, yeah but I'm yeah. constantly thinking like with that midfield that they had when you look at Mascherano and Gerard and Alonso and then Kaka's running rings around them. Yeah. And he, because he, but he knew he couldn't do that all the time. Because if he lost to Mascherano, then he's got Alonso and Gerard running towards an aging Ambrosini at that time, who, you know, who wasn't by all intents and purposes like the, the best player, but he was still solid. And Pirlo getting older and Seydorf probably the only one to stop him. But then, and he knew exactly when to, to pick up the ball, when to just keep it simple, but also when to encourage his teammates to get involved and you can see him becoming that leader on the pitch which I didn't really see much of before so I think Bellingham has the potential to be that player obviously we haven't seen it he hasn't been in that situation yet but if he can just learn to calm things down and to just be cold and icy which we are I think it is in his personality to do that then he will do it but I agree with you Kaka is more graceful for sure but I think the essence of why he was is because he didn't have fear and he just and he loved playing football. Bellingham has that too. It just shows in different yeah, ways. Yeah, I think I think the difference here for me is, and again, I think why you see the similarities it is mm. the f- functionality of that setup of that diamond formation. But why do you play that diamond formation, and why do you that diamond formation being created because of Bellingham yeah. for Real Madrid? Yeah, for AC Milan, it's more so they kind of had it. Yeah. And then they've put Kaka in as, oh, okay, you're a perfect fit for it. Mm -hmm. What I would suggest is that when I look at the two, I I feel like Kaka is a bit more, it's about enjoyment Mm -hmm. and about, like you say, kind of almost getting out of the way to be in the right place at the right time. A lot of freedom with him, wasn't there? A lot of freedom with him. And um, 
yeah, and sometimes you know staying away from the ball, mm-hmm. right? Bellingham is not. No. I think that's where Bellingham is all desire. Yeah, and the energy that he's got right now is a sort of a, a superpower that say like a Rooney had mm-hmm. at, at one point in time, and I think Gerard for a couple of years had mm-hmm. that same thing where. He can outrun you. He's quicker than you. He's stronger than you. He's better on the ball than you. He wants it more than you. And so that's not... The Kaka's different to that. It's a different thing. It's a different player. And what I would throw out there is that Bellingham will have a longer, more distinguished career and he will be captain. I don't know why I just did quote. (laughs) He will be the captain, I think, for several teams and be known as that. Yeah. That's not something Kaka is kind of known as. And I think... And again, this is dangerous, but I, I haven't seen many players like this. No. I think at the end of it all, we will suggest that Bellingham was a better player than Kaka. I know it's dangerous. I think we can. It, it, that's when we get on to success and we get on style over success because you can't... He's a Ballon d'Or winner. We're talking about someone yeah, who was the best of course, player yeah. And Bellingham's not one thing. And Bellingham's not there. So, But you can. Like, obviously, he's at the one place where you want to be to win a Ballon d'Or. If, no disrespect to Modric, but if he can win it, definitely the Bellingham can win it because, you know, especially the era he's going into, he might struggle with the whole Haaland and Mbappe. <laughs> He'll probably hog it all the time. But mm. I think, yeah, we will definitely see that. And because um, one, one thing I do agree with you on is like, I'm now thinking of when Kaka went to Real Madrid and he didn't have the freedom and I think about when he was at Brazil and he had an older Ronaldo Ronaldinho I think Adriano broke through and then they just weren't the team that they used to be if he was in the 98 team or the 94 team oh he would have had a field day in that because yeah. it was there for him but it never was So, do, do you know what it is for me it's Kaka needs to be given the keys he does Yeah, Bellingham's taking, taking the, the keys. keys that's a good way of putting it I like that I one. think that's the difference yeah yeah, yeah. I like that there one. are parallels Bellingham has, of course, five, scored five goals in his first four appearances at the time of recording. Mm-hmm. But Kaka has also had a similar run of goal scoring on his debut season for Milan from game week 12 to 18. Kaka scored six goals, which is obviously comparable to Bellingham's start this season. But here's a future ripple. After scoring 10 goals and getting five assists in Serie A in his debut season, Kaka went on to get 19 assists across all competitions in the following season, 04-05, which yeah. we've said it's, I think, the best version of this AC Milan side. Yeah. So does this mean that we have only seen a tiny glimpse of the player that Bellingham will become at Madrid? Oh, of course. Here's a question for you. Yeah. When did it... Because obviously with Real Madrid, we're... And people have, we're all for, as we are, literally sat here talking about it now. But we're too quick to say yeah. this is something historic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When for AC Milan did it click? Is there a pattern from the past that we might be able to keep an eye out for him? I think it began to click once because when Kaka came, yeah, he had some like good goal involvements and things, but there was still a lot of rotation in the team. So injuries were a bit of a problem with some of the older players. I think Stam had a big problem with injuries when he was there um there was a run just before like going into the key stages of the 2005 champions league where you look at the results they're not great i think they nearly lost to psv and they nearly got they nearly got kicked out on a, on a couple of occasions i think they beat, beat man united but everyone does nowadays but he um yeah he, so there was a lot of rotation i think we saw like kaka kaladze play like quite a key role ambrosini was was there costa curta was like 40 odd and he was still playing left back and maldini started coming in centrally but there was a run of games from about january where stam just stopped being injured for a little bit because he did have a serious problem with it and later on i think he went to ajax and barely played um but then he played and you think if you go through the lineup now 
you this lineup started to play quite a lot of games and I think they featured in pretty much every Champions League game if not a few subs um, but it was Dida, Cafu, Nesta, Stam, Maldini, uh, Gattuso, Pirlo, Seydorf, Kaka and fucking Shevchenko and Crespo. Oh, it's, it's all made sense and Inzaghi was still in about he would always come in for Thingy, uh, Sheva or Crespo but when he had his favourite two, when he had his favourite... I think when he had his favourite centre-backs and favourite two, that's when it started clicking out. I remember, if my research is right, around Feb that year is when they started playing a lot together. It's because everyone sort of... I just said earlier, no one had a role, but everyone sort of still knew what they were there for. It's like, you're not there to just pick up the ball and do this. You're there to like contribute to the team. And they started buying into that ethos a lot. And around... Feb is when you start knowing if you're going to ex exceed in the Champions League or not and they had a pretty favourable run like to be fair to them when they had PSV in the semis um, and they, I think Jason Park might have played in that semi I'm pretty sure he did um, and they were facing they'd already beat the likes of Man United so they had this sort of like thing that they were going to go on and win it I think Barcelona might have been in their group I don't know if that's might have been 2007 but they started believing in themselves a bit and then that team when it lined up eventually against Liverpool you don't even need to look at the Liverpool team because it was a shock it wasn't a good good team really but then that one they'd had some experience finally because they were always there for that whole that whole group of players were there since the beginning of the year some beginning of last year but they never really hunkered down because you had Inzaghi there instead of Crespo you had Favali and Costa Curta instead of Stam it just never really looked right they were almost too versatile for the role that he needed at that time but as soon as Stam came back I think that's when it clicked because then they could everyone could be trusted to do what they needed to do and um, even Dida only really started that season because Abiati was out on an international so once that team actually started fitting around Feb that's when you thought okay now this makes sense. Why can't Ancelotti stay away from the diamond? <laughs> I think there's a bit of an inherent safety in it. Because when you've got three, you think you kind of know what each role needs to be. So, so to speak, you need a ball-winning midfielder, you need a, a playmaker or maybe a for your FM fans, Ram Deuter, just go and do what you need to do. And then more of a cam, like an attacker. But... If one of those pieces falls like a tripod, it will just fall over. So it needs to be right. You've seen great players struggle in that. United are a perfect example. Like they can't find the one in between Cassie and Bruno. Amrabat hopefully can do that. But with a four, you've got an extra body in there for a bit more protection and you can always interchange. Like when you were going through the parallels, I could have easily have said, no, this player is that. This player is him instead. It's because they're so interchangeable. I think that's why he keeps on going back because he trust them and he wants them to be the best that they can be but also for them to trust each other I think in a three it's difficult because it's a bit more it's also harking back to his time when there was always four in midfield so it was a bit of a comfort blanket for him do you and know what he could visualize it better I think I think part of it is no like he's tried to do it at Chelsea not really worked mm. there he tried to do it by Munich not really worked there um but he sort of allowed it to kind of evolve and I guess learn from it at yeah. times I think they played a Ingolstadt and a lot of the, they won the game, but okay. loads of chances came from out wide because they had some concerns there. And one concern I have got for Real Madrid moving forward mm -hmm. is, it's not a huge concern because I think they can solve it, is the fullback position. Yeah. Because I don't think they're there yet in terms of having, you know, if you think Cafu and Maldini, mm -hmm. it's a bit of a jump up, yeah, you know, yeah. if you want to kind of get to that point. Yeah. And I think if they can go and get them, those kind of fullbacks, then then they're going to be really, really frightening. Yeah. But I think the reason he keeps coming back to it is his ability 
to be in an environment full of egos mm -hmm. and to facilitate those egos, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And if you think of any team, right? Who are the players? It's, who are the players that are the biggest, loudest, desperate to be involved players? Mm -hmm. It's your eight and your 10 yeah, a lot of the yeah. time, right? Yeah. And I think to have all those midfielders, I think it's very clever because mm -hmm. as you just said, you've got players that they need the freedom to go where they kind of want to be. Mm -hmm. The freedom to use their own minds, the freedom to use more than one element of a, a skill set. Yeah. And I think the way that modern football's gone, I think some of these players are, are fed up with that and they want to mm -hmm. go back to being able to be have that freedom. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, watch Bellingham. He drops shorts. He, he goes over to the right-hand side. He makes a run in behind. He's mm -hmm. doing all these different things. I think in the midfield area, especially at the top teams, mm -hmm. you will always have a gluttony of quality. Yeah in the center of the park. Yeah. It's where and everyone wants to be, isn't it? It's where everyone wants to be because they all want to be involved. Yeah. And what he allows is for them all to be involved. Yeah. And to be involved, they also have to sacrifice a little bit because yeah. I know I'll get my turn in a minute. Yeah, yeah. And it comes back to Phil Jackson maybe a little bit yeah, again yeah. when you think of that, that the triangle uh, offense. Offense, yeah. Which prior to that, it was Jordan going, give me the ball, give me the ball, give me yeah, the ball. Yeah. And then Phil Jackson says to him, if we play this way, mm. you'll score more points and we'll all score more points. Yeah, yeah. And that comes from being sacrificial to allow for confusion for the opposition, for overloads, but also for like a utilizing of the brains of these brilliant yeah. players. Yeah. And that also comes back to him as a player as well, right? And yeah. his ability to understand what it's like mm. and to therefore give the keys yeah. to a, a midfield that, I think generally wouldn't totally work. But yeah. if you've got fullbacks that are too good to be fullbacks, mm. put them in a diamond formation. Exactly. If you've got midfielders that are too good to be midfielders, yeah. put them in a diamond formation. Do you know what's funny? You know how everyone talks about the inverted wingbacks and stuff now? First of all, it happened in fucking Michelle's and it happened so many years before. Just watch both of these Champions League games. You've got Maldini and Cafu. Yeah, they bomb it down, but they, they're always in the middle and they're always doing what they have to do. But... I just like whatever happened to just trusting football players. I think I think it's got to a point where when there is so much information there, it's, it's easy to rely on something else. Yeah. But in the moment, it's still with the best. Yeah. It can still be done, and I think if you are that football fan mm. that enjoys the Ancelotti way, yeah, I think you have to root for Real Madrid. I think you're gonna love them. I, I think, think you're gonna enjoy it. Right. I, like obviously as a United fan I would love nothing more than to have Bellingham in United shirt we'd ruin him like because we're not we're not equipped to deal with someone like him because we're, we're crap ourselves and we don't know what we're doing but Madrid is the, like when I saw that go through and I saw the Zidane number and I saw even the kit look nice and the decals I was like that makes sense mm. and then I saw who he was under and I was just thought okay because I keep going back to this idea of trust you have to start trusting your players because your players will trust each other and when you're talking about the fullbacks that's probably do that is what they need because what i never thought and again this is me it's a bit superlative if i'm honest but like i don't ever think if i was gattuso and i saw there's a player going down the right wing and i might need to get over there i don't think i'm panicking because paolo's there and then if i'm like Pirlo, i don't think i'm panicking oh, Cafu, so he'll get back he's what 58 he'll do he'll do a job what they have to go past stam <laughs> good luck yeah. like i think there was always that and that and it annoys me when we do get to that. And th there's always a place for it. There's always a place for data. And, and it definitely, we needed it. It's the 21st century of football. But like, sometimes you need to just go back to basics. And Ancelotti 
has always kept it pretty basic. I trust you to do this job. If I trust him, that means you trust him. So don't worry, we got each other. Let's let's bounce. And um, that one clip of when he was in the Champions League final against, it must have been Liverpool, I think. Um, and there's a little clip where he's talking to Cruz and Modric about the game. They're talking way more than he's talking. You don't see that anymore. You're seeing... Arsenal draping around Arteta like, let's go guys, we're going to do this and this is that. And you've got Ten Hag saying some, I don't know what he's saying half the time. And then what, like Guardiola's not keeping quiet, Klopp's not keeping quiet because they've got big egos themselves. Here you've got a guy who's all about quiet leadership, who lets them talk, talks when he needs to. And for that, you linger on every single word. And that is a... If that's a very Phil Jackson style of leadership. He didn't have to talk all the time, but when he did, you fucking listen to him. And that's what we've missed. And... For any Real Madrid fan out there, enjoy, cause you. But let him cook, cause this man, uh, like he, he's old and he's this, and there'll be a time where he has to go. Like Wenger had to go. There's gonna have to be a time. Now is the time you keep him and you let these young, precocious, moldable guys learn from someone who's not only been there and done that, but knows how they can be there and do that. Just give him, just let him, let yeah. him work. I totally agree. Final question: What is the truth about AC Milan? Under Ancelotti. Oh, that's a good question. And you did write it down, so I should have an answer. <laughs> but I I think it's the most misunderstood football team ever for me. They should be talked about like I spoke about them, like how I speak about them now. I revere them as man for man, one of the best teams ever. I think you're you're struggling to beat them man for man. But also they did things that I don't think any team is really capable of because not many people know this but after everyone's happy to laugh at Istanbul and it's kind of funny but there was talk about like like I'm talking about articles at the time saying like oh they were complacent they were this like Gattuso's not complacent Stan's not it was just a freak like Carragher came out and on the overlap it's, it's a freak like it happens and that's what that's the beauty of football really but half the players had to go into therapy after Istanbul and it's called Istanbul syndrome now when it when it happens and it's like Okay, so you go through that. You've already built a great team and you've won the chat. People forget they won it in 2003. Like, you're, they're not stupid and you've got some great players there. You go through that in 2005 and then Calciopoli hits. Everyone, I don't think Italy is still recovered from Calciopoli because they've never got back to the heights of where they should have been. Maybe Inter with the treble helped, but then that was a fart in the wind. It just, it went eventually. <laughs> but Milan was there, for, like, um, Ancelotti was there for about eight years, uh, seven years, 200 days. And he's the longest serving manager in their history. So, when you think of that and you think of how his team was dismantled, he lost Shevchenko to Chelsea. He lost a lot of his best players to age and injury. And yet still, in 2007, this is why the story came out, is because in 2007, they faced the exact same opposition, but they're weaker and the opposition stronger. They're wearing the same colours, white their kit, red Liverpool kit, but it's in Athens, in Greek, where the tragedy could be made even worse is where the storyteller comes out the tragedy could be worse but instead what they do they rise from the ashes and beat them and we talked about um like the whole beginning the um front of the book says how Ancelotti became world champions and that's because in that same season back in 2003 they had the club world cup they lost to Boca Juniors at the time it wasn't a freak loss it was it was actually quite a fair one it's like one or two nil but then you think oh it's another they've beaten Liverpool can they go and beat Boca and yeah they did so they went through everything a single group of players can possibly go through. They stuck together. They hung in there. Things that teams can't do, like they've done since. Like Football's quite fickle now. Mm. And this is a harking back to one of the greatest football teams of all time. And I think it's about time we start recognising them as that.
Deb, thank you very much, mate. Thanks for having me. That was fun. Mate, it's great stuff. So Dev's book is, uh, well, there's a link to it in the description. If you want to search for it on Amazon, I don't want to butcher the title again. Yeah, The Conquerors. I know it is The Conquerors. I know it's The Conquerors. I just, I'm scared, okay? The Conquerors. Go check it out. Go support someone who is getting off their backside and loves the game as well, as you've just heard. Um, and he's on TikTok as well. Yeah, it's crucial to find. It's crucial to doing a lot of stuff. Uh, if you enjoyed this one and you'd like us to do more, let me know on Twitter. And there are a few uh, evergreen ones. Uh, we did one on La Remontada actually, which might be a good one to go and check out. But anyway, the podcast is fantastic. So go check out all of them. Give us a five star rating as well. Thanks so much for listening. Go check out the video that we've made using clips from this, and uh, we'll see you soon.